Welcome to Techno Social. My name is Daniel Fraga. And I'm Owen Cox, and this is Scouts of the News. A weekly show where we're talking about all things shamanic, symbolic, occult, and technological from the weird side of the internet. Consider becoming our patron and uh, donating to help us continue to bump more of this weird and wacky content from the other side of reality all the way to the comfort of your own screen. We hope you enjoy. Patreon.com forward slash Right, hello, welcome back to Techno Social. It's me and Daniel, Scouts of the Newosphere, Volume 2. Today we thought we'd have a go at riffing around work and future work configurations as enabled by new network internet technologies, but also the more kind of creative psychotechnological stuff as well, drilling down a bit even into subcultural design, cult design, religion design, and wherever else the road may take us. Absolutely. So here's what I thought. Digital nomadism is something that is not only true of the earth, but also the heavens. What does this mean? That not only is it becoming a fact uh, that we can witness in specific classes of uh, of digital workers that Bard called the netocrats, you know, the, the hipsters who live in Bali and uh, these people who are location independent. Well, digital nomadism doesn't only apply to them, but it is increasingly applying to everyone's sort of digital mental location, <clears throat> to their memeplex, to their mental tribes. And I think that that's going to have an impact on, sub, uh, on, how, on the future of work. Because not only are people location independent and they can work from anywhere, but they can also have completely different configurations of memeplexes, of ideologies, of things they believe, of reality bubbles, of subcultures. Oh, precisely. And I think it's a curious point where now, especially as more and more people, more and more kind of at least in the kind of elite structure of society are going into these working from home or at least partially working from home working cultures that the person who you are when you go to the office it matters so much anymore especially starting a new job right you know if you if you'd been working in a place before coronavirus then i guess still having teams or zoom calls you'd still bring that persona but you know, now you start a new job and if you're working remotely, which I know a bunch of startups are doing and increasingly so, and why wouldn't you? Because you can just save money on actually having to have office space, right? You can show up and just be whoever. You are the face you are on the screen and and nothing else. And I guess what's curious about that is it means that, that actually workplace culture is either disintegrated or is going to be very different so daniel you were just speaking about a context where they're doing kind of cosmic meditations via zoom on a friday morning right that's taking corporate well-being stuff but ramping it up a little bit adding a little bit of mythopoetic energy to it making it a little bit esoteric a little bit cult-like a little bit more spicy and i can see this this becoming more of the norm, really. Absolutely. I think, yeah, in parallel with all the technological developments, in parallel with the COVID, which is propelling everyone to become remote, I think we're also seeing the sophistication of the techniques of subculture design, meaning that in order to go here and have a bunch of people that are uh, in different places around the world to work together, to believe together, to, to share a persona, to share a set of values, <clears throat> to have some sort of similarities within their realities, then you're going to have to create a completely virtual subculture and really look at the intangible aspects of culture, which is, I think, another reason why um, ontological design is emerging as a practice. The future of work is going to require this ability to cohere groups of people, uh, small, large, maybe it's a team, maybe it's a startup, maybe corporations will adopt this. Um, but location independence and, and is, is the consequence of globalization. And even globalization feels like it's pointing towards virtuality. 
towards the move towards an exodus rather towards the digital you know a large corporation itself is an ontological design strategy based off of particular i think military bureaucratic mm-hmm. ways of organizing humans and human labor even down to the uniform that you wear the suit the tie the jacket you know i was reading something today i've been reading this book by um, the marxist historian eric cobsball and he was talking about the growth of the era of um of corporate capitalism right around about the turn of the 19th to 20th century and he makes this point that prior to the corporation the only way to exercise a a working human unit of that scale was to run it like a military or a nation state which is why you had national railway companies and national postage companies that actually have a uniform and are very often managed in part being officials the way to achieve a kind of a functioning trading bureaucracy in a way that was of that scale but not controlled by a central power was almost just impossible because there were no way no ways to to guarantee its ability to extract resources to extract um or rather to enter into productive <clears throat> relationships of reciprocity and trust with other trading institutions unless they had the backing of a, of a state military power right he makes this point that there's essentially two ways of cohering people who don't know each other either kinship relationships so things like family and religion Mm. or legal institutions things like uh well laws regulations Mm -hmm. having lawyers to interpret them yeah the era of corporate capitalism was really where this power shifted away from from the the national powers into a kind of privatized uh, privatized nations if you will but they themselves needed some kind of agreement that they would compete within fair limits and of course we know that they're kind of out to fuck each other up but there was still a kind of cultural agreement as to what they were doing which i think is essentially what the ontological design of the Mm -hmm. bureaucracy is completely and that design of the corporate the corporate um meanplex of this apparatus that inscribes individuals within discourses of power is nested in a very interesting sort of let's say tradition or a set of constraints that i think is worth mentioning here it is fundamentally descends from the enlightenment from its values namely the notion of the individual the cartesian individual that is separate from its environment, right? I am here and this is my environment. That split between subject and object is root number one. Nested within that, you can find things like liberalism, the ability to create a functioning democracy for which you require individuals, the ability for those individuals to enter into trade relationships, the advancement of capitalism, the ability of those individuals to be inscribed within those productive relations. You need schools for that. You need the 19th century social reformists like Jeremy Bentham to go and look at how to regiment these people. If you bring them from the, from the countryside to, to London of this 19th century, then you're going to invent the police. You're going to invent hygiene. You're going to invent the model of schools where probably you and I still went to, sitting in a classroom with a teacher over there where the bell rings. It's still very much 19th century industrial paradigm um you can't forget like napoleon and his role in kind of centralizing a lot of the bureaucracies that today make up the state um i think all of these things together they're like the 20th 19th and 20th century answers to their technological conditions that they had then um and the 21st century have similar ones you know the 19th century social reformists like bentham uh, can today be found in, in books like Nudge and Hooked. How are we going to push people, nudge them ever so slightly to the right direction? This sort of corporate liberal paternalism. We're going to show you the right stuff. Don't worry, we'll censor the fake news. We're, we're, here's, the, here's the, what do you call it? The fact check. 
And I think that's kind of like how we are, the 20th century paradigm is stumbling down slowly and slowly, because uh, trying to make, make sense of this 21st century paradigm that incorporates, that involves a, a breaking up of these old forms of, of the corporation of, not necessarily the corporation, but old, old forms of social cohesion, right? Like going to work, having that persona, right? Personality itself is under disruption. The individual identity are under disruption. Look at TikTok, look at Facebook. It's a whole new game. It's, it's a completely different way of becoming individual. And we're only going to see the effects of this in, in decades, but it's fundamentally different. There's a fragmentation as well. You can, if you contain multitudes last century, this century you contain multitudes squared, right? And, and, and it feels like there's a, obviously this tendency towards a virtualized geist, towards this, this virtualized existence, uh, being just becoming a part of the, digital, of the digital world as we move slowly and slowly towards a post-enlightenment or rather dropping these 20th century ways to solve these problems. Precisely. There's a point, a couple more points from Hobsbawm that I'd just love to emphasize when we're talking about the 19th and 20th century as well. Like, so he makes this, he points out that when the guys like Adam Smith were writing about capitalism and talking about how this rational pursuit of individual advantage would lead to the wealth of nations, they were building it off a, um, a particular kind of unconscious assumption about the nature of what man was like in his social and working life. Namely, that he actually had a kind of industrious, laborious habit, that he delayed gratification, that he had a propensity for saving investing, that he knew how to be loyal and obedient, that he took pride in achievement, and that there was a kind of custom where people trusted each other. Now, I'm reading off of my notes here, right? That, in large part, is based on the Protestant work ethic in the West. Mm -hmm. In other places, it's based on other cultural and social institutions essentially of what values were how to be a decent person what happens in the 20th century is especially with the post-war era and the the economic booms and the concurrent like liberalization and the consumer desire era is that all of these earlier more what you might call homogenizing pressures that teach people to be like one another and to to trust one another and experience themselves as kind of being part of this great society that's doing something together, disintegrate. And what you get instead is really the era of, of the individual. It's like the, the 18th and 19th century guys invented the individual, but it really came to its culmination in the mid 20th century. And it was precisely at this point that the institutions that had been built around it, the corporate capitalism then begins to, to modify slightly, it's it's geared towards just giving people what they want, want right. And similarly with politics too, it's the nudge effect, as you said. I think politics, in fact, is actually a really interesting case where rather than the idea being that you have a, um, a statement-like elite who make great speeches and have visions and try to lead people in a certain direction, whether it's Churchill or whether it's Mao, whether it's Hitler, whether it's Roosevelt, that is a certain type of mm. political man as engendered by a certain kind of ontologically designed circumstance, if you will. We're in a different era now. It's the era of the nudge, the era not so much of of the vision and the grand speech, but the, the micromanaged um, data tracked, <clears throat> what's the word? What, the guys, behavioral psychology, mm. behavioral psychological motivation of people to just do what the right thing is, right? And mm. we all know what the right thing is, right? All of us listening, it's, you point people in the right direction, you say, they know that. Don't think the wrong things. Don't collect the wrong information. We know what the right stuff is to do, right, guys? Hmm. It's this branded reality. Feels like the peak of, of the individual as a construct, as a reality, as a, a way for people to become subjects, right? Before the individual, people became subjects in different ways, right? People belong to a family or a clan or an extended family. 
They were of a place, of a time, of a kingdom, under the king, whatever. Apparatuses of subjectification were different. Then <clears throat> they, they began to proliferate. To adapt to that proliferation, initially the individual was, was extremely useful. But as the individual reached its peak, after the peak, it starts to go down. Peak individual happened in the 90s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s. Similarly to peak oil, there's like a direct relationship between the two, to be perfectly honest, uh, because one sustains the other. Why? Because the individual is all about releasing desire. It's all about releasing constraints. It's all about the Reichian and Freudian notion that all desire needs to be free because it is currently, you know, stuck in these institutions and that is oppressive and that is the root of all misery and, and discontent in man. That's the theory of these 20th century leading thinkers. Um, which incidentally fits so well with capitalism <clears throat> and with liberal capitalism that it just becomes slightly uncanny. Uh, maybe capitalism recuperates everything, who knows. But what happened was that the releasing of desire, the releasing of the constraints that existed upon desire, you know, um, free love, rock and roll, that became a means by which people were inscribed, individuals were inscribed in uh, power relations is you release desire by becoming a consumer, by becoming a rocker, by becoming a rebel, by becoming an activist, by becoming um, anything, anything, by becoming a financial analyst, whatever. But it, it's, it's in, it inherently connected to capital, this releasing of desire, right? That's how one becomes an individual in the era of, of peak oil. Now, you mentioned something also very interesting. This is the kind of the second point that I wanted to go to. The corporation uh, as this means to organize individuals. And I think if you look at it as a corporation, not as the machine of humans, this, this artificial superorganism made of humans that is intended to produce profit, but if instead you, you look at it as a collection of individuals that is there to produce um, coherence and to move towards a goal, to achieve that goal, then the question suddenly gains a new interest because then no longer are we talking about how the corporation can yet again find a niche wherein to integrate itself in the market and thereby sort of be ruled by its uh, philosopher's stone, the money. Rather, the corporation starts to become something that is about creativity and power and how to get people to do things. Uh, obviously, if you look at it practically, money will always be a consideration or, or maybe not always, who knows? But the whole point is that the, the departure point for, for thinking about this in the 21st century is starting to become the design of subcultures, the design of creative environments, disruptive environments, uh, and that has, has, is going to say something about the, the future of work because the future of work is, is going to, to be extremely different than that which we have seen hitherto. The influencer, the, the virtualization of work, of media, all of these things, they require, it's not about the money you have. It's not about throwing a lot of money to these things. It's about a different thing. And that's precisely the thing that we're trying to discuss here. Yeah. I mean, like very briefly, just on the first thing you said, it's like there's this shift from being a liberal, meaning that you're essentially an, an economic liberal citizen. So you, um, you can pursue your business interests and read and think what you want to think, right? It, it shifts from being an economic, uh, being liberally economic to being libidinally liberal. Desire whatever you want. That is the Holy Grail, right? Where actually 18th, 19th century individualism, it's still very morally constrained. There's still a very clear idea of what as a man you are supposed to do and who you're supposed to desire and how you're supposed to desire. And similarly, as a woman, and God forbid that you happen to like sticking your dick in other men's asses. 
that's all changed, right? So that's the first point. But no, bringing back back to the 21st century precisely, it's like the configuration is so different now. I mean, to even go into the office is to is to step into a um, a different place, if you will. Hmm. Whereas now, like we are both, um, at least in part, own money as as freelancers doing stuff from our bedrooms or our living rooms, right? There's no longer that stepping into this other place where there is so much of a persona. One still goes on to Zoom calls and adopts a bit of a persona and writes an email with the like, hi, Sally, great to hear from you. Hope you had a good weekend, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Best wishes, Owen. We still do that. That's the kind of equivalent of of the of the chats of the coffee machine but that's as far as it gets right mm-hmm. now it's it's <laughs> the bedroom i think especially for 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 people in our demographic the bedroom or the or the table or the coffee shop is the new office and mm. the screen is the new office rather than taking a break and standing up to go around you take a break by checking your phone by checking your whatsapp by going on youtube for a bit and maybe there's that little voice in the back of your head that says i should go outside for five minutes and have a breath okay and, and before we jump into the term libidinally liberal which is probably the best take i've heard all week do you know why this is a a very special situation for us in terms of um the office is now a screen because the political, let's say the political and, and the power relations that were embedded in an office space, not only between people, but also in the discourses between the people, right? You, you're nicer to the CEO and uh, you know, there's certain respect that you have for a certain person who is more senior, but then if you want to do the flat hierarchy thing, you are, you do the Zizek thing where you are like forced to enjoy and your boss is like a nice guy next to you and so on and so on. But what happens with the era of virtualization is that that whole set of power relations of constraints of norms is now put in the domain that is manageable. In other words, <clears throat> not necessarily the office politics, but the whole, the rest of the, of the power apparatus of the office is now brought into an environment where it's your screen and you can manage your screen. You can like, th- there's a certain degree of control that is earned there. And that control does not hinge on money, but on uh, perhaps a craft, perhaps the subcultural design that we're talking about. And that's why so many people are talking about small emerging <clears throat> communities, mimetic insurrections, uh, reality bubbles, and how they play a role in creating the future of work and in riding this, this wave of virtualization. Um, because that's where the trend is going. And there's no other way <clears throat> around it. If there are any vestiges of Napoleon and of Jeremy Bentham in our daily lives, they will fade away any given decade now. Mm. And the screen, the black mirror as well, was invented by American Silicon Valley types who are precisely the next generation children of the era of libidinal liberalism. Mm. They're like the... Mm. How is right? how does the machine, this machine, this keypad machine work? It it gives you what you want, right? There aren't really any limits to where you can go to. You can go to any which way corner of the internet. And they had this kind of utopian, I guess, kind of techno-utopian anarchist dream in the beginning that free information flows would just... <laughs> liberate all of humanity from oppressive structures mm. but there was this i guess underestimation of how libidinal economy loves to centralize 
and people themselves. I think most people themselves like to, or well, I was going to say like to direct their libidos to around some central node, but perhaps it's totally flipped. Perhaps libido, which is something alien within us, likes to direct itself to something, to some central node. That's the kind of mimetic hypothesis of guys like René Girard, right? A desire wants precisely what others want. And so this idea of a, um, of a perfectly free and open internet, as it started, was sucked into the Joe Rogans and the Facebook groups and wherever else the people lined up, this or that Twitter echo chamber. And the key point being going forward, I think, is, as we've discussed on many recent podcasts, reclaiming that libido, re- reorienting the center of digital desire towards being something that is um is like you social in the eu social sense in a way that kind of beneficial ideally for you and for your community and ideally for the whole community but i think we've got to start small right now it feels like we're kind of talking in two threads here i wonder if we can synthesize the two together with with work and with with libido and then i think really where it comes to its fore is building work itself is in a sense a kind of a libidinal node you go to the or you went to the office and for eight hours a day your desires are actually managed in a kind of more or less totalitarian fashion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your boss says can you do this for me the correct answer is either yes or no but only because there's this 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 and this problem with it Mm-hmm. with the view that you're gonna um, you're gonna redirect and create something from that impulse right there's some kind of agency that exists within the bureaucratic structure that colonizes your life force and directs it and if you say no to it well that's you out the door right mm-hmm. but because precisely of the flows of capital the need to sustain oneself within a market economy means that Precisely. that no is not something that you can say very often precisely because that, that's so cool um the um, there is a monopoly on the dispositives or apparatuses of maintaining the sex economy or or in other words when you were talking i was thinking that's such a nice way to talk about that's such a nice sex economical um configuration libidinally economical because <clears throat> In the corporation, it's, it's the place where you submit. Or at work, you will submit. Why? Because then you have money. What for? To endlessly pursue desire. So there's like a much more bicameral structure here, whereas one is like completely oppressive or pretends not to be, but it's still, it's still what capital wants. And, they'll, and then um, outside it is the releasing of desire and its pursuit. Now, the way you talked about screens and technology is very interesting. And it tells us precisely how we're going to transition from 19th century Bentham paradigm to the 21st century ontological design paradigm, if you will, which is the idea that, you know, screens and technology, they're bicycles for the mind. They make wishes come true. They do. I'm talking to you, you're far away. Our wishes are now fulfilled. Our wish is our desire. And not only have our desires become increasingly fulfilled because our technical proficiency is insane, therefore, you know, super stimulating us with dopamine, the likes of which we were never designed or evolutionarily programmed to receive, but it also creates a certain economical deflation of desire, meaning um, it has a negative effect. Whereas Corporations understand that in order to move a series of individuals to a certain place, their desires needs to be, need to be curbed. I, you need to come in at this time, get out at this time, make sure you work in the meantime, make sure you work well, make sure you are able to relate to other people, do your proper work. So that's all a way to curb, manage, channel desire. <clears throat> and the past knew this. Not only did Bentham knew, know this, but also the Catholic Church, uh, Islam knows this extremely well. It's all about uh, constraining desire. And I think that because we live in the Western global age of um, the unleashed desire, which is kind of this 
liberalism and capitalism's end game or, or late stage. Um, that makes that opens up the way and the space for a new wave of constructors of these systems to channel. And, and they're just, the space is being opened there um, out of saturation and out of chaos. There's a void for structure. And I think that structure is precisely going to come from a, a good understanding of Heidegger, which we didn't have until now. Meaning, not that we didn't have until now, but now it feels like with digital, we can apply it, ontological design. Breaking the split between subject and object and understanding that by designing that design, that's a level, uh, that's a level of operation that um, can go beyond <clears throat> capital and its unceasing exploration of the releasing of desire. It can also go along with capital and fuck people deeply, but that's just evidence of its own, uh, of its relevance. Does this make sense? I think so. I mean, what I was going to say, there's a, it's an important distinction. I think we will continue to draw it across our, our conversations between this um, this individual political subject and the kind of the Dasein political subject mm. of desiring subject as you as you allude to. And um, I mean, even I, I'm not completely clear on what it means, other than that the Dasein is nested much more existentially within a kind of a teleological worldview. There's a kind, there's a, a deep mythopoetic belonging where mm -hmm. the individual is kind of trapped in a, uh, a rationalist nihilism where his or her own desire is pretty much the only highest authority. Mm -hmm. I think this can be very easily and simple, simplified in, in one sentence, which is if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, would you still be doing the same thing you're doing today? Science, or, or rather Heidegger at some point speaks about this relationship with death and uh, the acknowledgement and proper meditation as the source of meaning. Um, a meaning which given the finality and absoluteness and inescapability of death kind of borrows that absolute value. And that does, is, is a trump card when played against um, the flows of desire of capital in an existential manner. Does this make sense? As in, you know, I'm, if I'm going to die, then why am I going to spend eight hours, you know, typing in a keyboard for a person that I hate? so that I can buy more stuff during the other eight hours that I have free? Well, maybe not so much. So there's, there's definitely space to explore in here, but I think it has to do with this new way to make meaning, to construct systems of meaning and how they subjectify us. Everything is a cult, right? This is the phrase we come back to again and again. Cult, root from cultus, Latin, cultivating, agricultural metaphor. What does a plant have? It has a certain libido, a certain drive within it. And to cultivate it or to cultivate a garden is to, is to skillfully direct that drive, knowing that the drive can either be extinguished or left to flower on its own or directed with some, as I said, the word I use, eusocial or eusocial purpose, but it can't ever be wholly steered, right? Now, all attempts at building civilization or civilizational nodes, and when I say civilizational node, I mean a corporation or a family attempts to to cultify, to enculturate, to create a cult of desire for a certain end. A well-performing, or actually even performing, it's a, it's a kind of business word, right? But a, a, a family oriented towards the good of its members will help development and, um, and understanding and cooperation between the members. A corporation, especially in the... Um, in the capitalist paradigm, which is the only one that corporations really exist within, is maximize profit for shareholders and convert the the meat into productive labor. Mm. To cult their desire, to provide them with well, and it's beyond the corporation, it's the whole the whole capitalist paradigm, mm -hmm. right? Is gives the uh, 
give the labor a decent enough carrot and a stick behind it, but let it internalize the stick rather than whipping the slaves. The political subject of modernity whips himself because he can't perform the way that his bosses want him to. You know, I was reading, I'm well, not reading, I heard this thing the other day about how I think Mark Fisher talks about it in fact that absenteeism is not no longer the problem in work. The problem is presenteeism. It's people who turn up when they shouldn't be there because they're sick or because they're injured, but they don't want to not go into work. Mm-hmm. Because they have to toe the line. They feel they have to toe the line. The cult is the cult stretches its tendrils deep down into people's uh, people's cores. But to zoom out again a bit, the point is you said that thing about if you were to die tomorrow, would you still be doing what you're doing today? Well, you know, sometimes you gotta bite the bullet and grind it out typing on the keyboard, right? But the question is, are you doing that because you yourself exist within some larger reality bubble, some other cult for which the grind is serving it? Or are you doing it because that is your primary cult? The cult of work is your primary cult. And what you do outside of it is the cult of release from work, which is enjoyment and escape, which is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with pleasure and experiencing your desires, but it's also directionless. Mm-hmm. It's just wanking off to the internet screen over and over again, rather than creating a lasting and meaningful mm-hmm. relationship. That's that's why the, the concept of this existential ceiling of the design is so important also known as death which is the master meaning provision concept of life um <clears throat> you can you can build a good cult and then by cult i mean institution or memeplex memetic tribe you are able to establish a dream that everyone else, that if a group of other people are, are able to dream along with you, only if you that that dream is um, is dreamt in a more genuine way, in a way that's that comes from you having confronted or confronting or being in a relationship with that existential ceiling, as opposed to trying to crank out a formula for top twenty songs or trying to dream up a shit cult from under water, the water of the ever increasing saturation of memes in the internet. Um, it's really this, this question of, is there anything inside of you that wants to be said or not? Um, and that is, is what distinguishes corporations and institutions that have some vitality or not. It's very hard to utilize money to get people to bring this from within to the without. It's very hard because it, it, it goes by its own rules. It doesn't go by the, by the bottom line of profit or by, by the bottom line of, you know, sometimes even the military had a better approach to that, that they could pull on the heroism strings of how to face death and all of a sudden, these guys can be heroes. Whereas in the corporate world, there's only the mythos of the hero who innovates. And the hero who innovates is always someone who's pulling against the existential ceiling in a private way and then showing it publicly as if it was something to, uh, you know, to somehow ameliorate the situation underwater, under the water of the, you know, the dead memes, the still water of the dead memes of the corporate capital world. You know, there's this phenomenon as tracked by Sebastian Jung, the American war journalist, who, in fact, I had on the podcast way back in the days. If you're listening, go and find it. And he speaks about how many American soldiers who returned from the wars in, in the Middle East, they found themselves longing to be back in the combat zone longing to be back in a situation which by all rational objective measures was fucking horrible it's life and death and it's being a long way from peace and everything that you knew and grow up with and it's also intense camaraderie life and death means every moment matters and the person by your side 
has your back because you've got their back because if you don't have each other's back then you both die I was listening to something yesterday about Heidegger and they said something that like um, framing existential angst is what baptism, marriage and funerals do fuck me right and when, when you speak about the military and these people like playing in between life and death, not playing, God, forget that, but, but their meaning making happening in the interplay between life and death, um, I think it's precisely right because the, 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 the more a ritual or the more a subculture has an established way to frame the existential lengths that has to do with death, the more effective they will be and the more meaningful they will be because there's only one meaning is how you approach death. Everything else is kind of a, it seeps down, it's trickle down, trickle down meaning making. Keeps on from that. Framing existential angst, man. That is so, so on point. And I just think, what do we have in, in our Western societies? No baptism. Very little. Marriage has kind of become a parody of itself. No one takes marriage seriously anymore. It's like you're gonna, you know what? I was um, fun. I, I was at um, my other job the other day. Um, my actual job in meat space, where I go and uh, work with people. <laughs> meat space with, uh, sounds like a startup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a startup. It's quite the opposite. It's people with severe mental disabilities. You can't extract any value from them. So it's just the bottom of the economic pile. But anyhow, the TV was on, and there was one of mm. these reality TV shows, and. Um, these couple were getting married, right? And the vows is not like, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you, but it's, I can't wait to spend the next chapter of my life with you. Already kind of implying that the marriage is going to end after this chapter. The marriage is the kind of, it's an entertainment. It's a holiday. It's, it's, there's no existential angst frame within that. That is just a framing of pure enjoyment. I mean, that, that does solve the existential angst of the business owner who sells wedding dresses. Or rather, let, let me pull some, some, some Heidegger in here. There's this nice distinction, uh, apparently, between the authentic and the inauthentic man. The authentic, it, there's a, a, some key words here, like there's a revelatory call of consciousness that comes from this confrontation with the angst of death, right? Master morality, if you want to bring it that way. The being towards death <clears throat> is something that awakens that consciousness, that meaning, meaning, shit, I'm going to die. I better do something. There's a certain awareness there. Um, if you do not necessarily avert it, if there is a certain radicalness, if um, because that's how being looks towards the cessation of being. Um, and, and that knowledge and acting from that knowledge is what to Heidegger constitutes the authentic man. And the inauthentic man uh, is the person who, who somehow averts. And we are all kind of a mix of both, obviously, but they, they are archetypal in the sense the mass man, or the das man, I believe, is, is, is someone who, who recycles the discourses created by authentic people, who just recycles their conventions and their cliches, and uh, who navigates around these mass and social media um, memetic universes. And um, that in itself constitutes a mode of relating to the other. And that mode is not rooted in a consciousness of death, but rooted on this, this other inauthenticness. And I think that this distinction is, is fundamental because in it, Heidegger just goes straight at the heart of it, which is if you're, you know, what, are, what is behind the barred absolute? Is, is a relationship with death somehow embodied, known, carried out to its full extent. The man who knows he will, he will die is more likely to pick up a mission, heroic, uh, and sacrifice everything to, to fulfill it because that gives him, give, that's meaningful. Uh, there's other ways to, to be meaningful, but they're less authentic. And that's why you will probably not remember what was on number two in the billboard charts in the year 2011. Because it doesn't mean anything. But you probably remember some, some the Snow White, which is like 10,000 years old as a, as a folktale. And, uh, and so on and so forth. 
One final thing I want to throw to you. Talk to me about lib- uh, libidinal liberalism or how liberalism re- relates to libidinalism, to libido. The libido. And to authenticity as well. Mm. So liberalism in its old school form, right, is about being free from traditional hierarchies legitimized by God or arbitrary fantasies, depending on which side of the French Revolution you're standing. I'm on Napoleon's side. What does that make me? (laughs) It's like, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. It's rather than... God having his appointed worldly monsters who are the justified monsters upon this earth. It is that the only valid means for distinguishing between people is they are their talents and their moral character as often described by the useful proxy of wealth and status. Now for this new man of power to to operate effectively in the world, he needs to be free to do what he wills with his capital and to think and speak what he wants to think and speak precisely so that he can commit the mental heresies that tear down the old power structures. But desire itself while of course i think freed up by some of the uh as religious authority fades even in the kind of early days of the enlightenment i think there's there's more of a reason to to desire different things but pure desire just for enjoyment's sake is still not the fundamental root of life if only because in part there's still a hell of a lot of people dying left right and center living standards are still pretty shit and consumer goods just don't exist there's luxury and there's kind of indulgence but that's maybe that that's only ever for a select few right if anything, the majority of humanity remain essentially peasants until the 1950s. Something like 80% of humanity, again, and this is Hobbesbaum statistic, they remain in what is pretty much the Middle Ages in terms of their relationship to, to work and to wealth. The only difference is perhaps that they now live in increasingly large numbers in in cities and work in factories as opposed to living in fields and working with with food and animals and then the consumer boom happens and the mass man's desire is on the plate for a while and the the idea of liberalism which was Originally, you know, there's a universality presupposed within liberalism, which is, as I said, we no longer have the king and queen and the aristocrats as God representatives, but any man can be a capitalist if he's got the talent to be a capitalist. It's still elitist in its actual manifestation. But then mid-20th century, you have the actual technological democratization. I say technological, meaning also the 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 relations of production, the relations of production become such that they can, and they can give the mass man what he wants for the first time, but then they can also tell the mass man what he wants for the first time, because all the mass man has ever really wanted was what he could want as a peasant until you put a nice shiny advertising screen in front of him. Right. Uh The technological conditions that, change throughout the centuries are, in my opinion, the drivers or or the main drivers for these social changes. So as oil and industry went up, 
we became democratic and we lost all the kings and all the churches and and this sense of uh, of monarchy being the rule by these benefactors and protectors of the nation it doesn't apply anymore it wasn't so much that oh these kings are stealing our money let's let's pull a let's pull a lefty here no it's it's actually that their value was just deflated it was deflated from a technological point of view meaning people are starting to become more cultured they're starting to become more individualistic through capitalism. I'm thinking about cusp of the cusp of the 20th century, right? When sort of around the time when most monarchies in the West fell and become transformed in a republic of some sorts. And I think that's technogenic. Uh, and I think that today is going to be the same. And it's, there, there's going to be sort of a return of different modes of managing discourse. So the old gatekeepers of discourses the where the kings and and the priests literally this nomadological archetype according to Georges Dumézil was the archetype of that goes all the way back to the Indo-European civilization right and I didn't mention the matriarch because I don't understand how to frame that here yet but maybe maybe only fans has an answer no and uh you know back in the day we had the kings and the priests the 20th century obviously we had we had the governments and the academia and and, and the mass media fulfilling a similar role and then as we move to uh, to the 21st century i think there's going to be something around this resurgence of not necessarily monarchy itself but the ideal of a ruler who's a benefactor and a protector insofar as these rulers may be gatekeepers of a reality tunnel Look at look at look at the relationship between the OnlyFans uh, uh, performer and their simps. There's a, a gate kept relationship there that has a deep libidinal implication and deep reality implication, right? That's it's kind of these these castration cults, like you call them. You have these women and you have all these bunches of men who are like pouring all their resources into that and basically throwing themselves into a genetic sinkhole and killing themselves and weeding themselves out. And um, I mean, if you're stupid enough to do it, I won't tell you to stop, but. Um, it points towards something. It points towards a new mode to look at monarchy, to look at this hierarchical way of relating to meaning-making. Um, it's always been there, right? There's always the, the science bros and the people who believe the, the mainstream media as this keeper of truth, and they're there to tell the truth and all that. But we're seeing that that's kind of like on a, down, on a downward um, trajectory. But man as a hierarchical uh, animal will, will keep recurring around the same themes. So I sincerely do believe that in the future, the king priests and, um, and the magician uh, kings will come under new guises, maybe as benefactors, maybe as leaders of small ontological tribes, maybe as leaders of their own subculture, maybe they're designers, maybe that's the future of a corporation and the future of work in the next 20 years. Prove me wrong. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.